We're chatting on World Whistleblowers Day 2020, an international event designed to highlight the work done by whistleblowers in exposing wrongdoing. And our focus is on whistleblowers in the workplace. I'm Meryl April, partner at CM Murray, and I'm joined today by Nick Hawkins, Louise O'Connor, and Sophie Rothwell, all of whom are associates at CM Murray, specialist employment and partnership firm. And we're joined by Charlotte Davies, a commercial litigation and employment specialist barrister at Littleton Chambers. So welcome to all of you. And if you are a senior exec or an advisor to senior execs, we're going to answer the following questions and also touch on other important points. So if you see something that disturbs you in your workplace, what do you do about it? How do you blow the whistle? How do you disclose information that you need to come to light? Secondly, what is key if, as a result of disclosing such information, you suffer consequences or, worst of all, are forced to resign or are dismissed? What is key to making a successful whistleblowing claim? And then what are the elements that you need to consider? This is a technical area and there are a number of aspects that we're going to look at to help you know what to focus on if you find yourself in the position of a whistleblower. But first, I think we should start with who can blow the whistle in the workplace environment. Some people will be familiar with employment rights that only relate to employees. Redundancy would be a good example. But whistleblowing is wider and it covers workers. So not just people with a contract of employment, but those working under a contract for services. And as case law has now told us, even judges who hold judicial office. Louise and Sophie, I know you've been looking at some of the cases in this area and in particular in relation to partners. So Louise, can you just talk a bit about partners and their position in relation to whistleblowing? Yes, that's right. And so there was one pretty important case on that issue. It's a matter of Clyde & Co. LLP v. Bates van Winkelhoff. In that matter, the claimant brought claims of whistleblowing and discrimination. She alleged that she had been expelled from a partnership because she had reported alleged criminal wrongdoing. There was a jurisdictional issue where the respondent argued that the employment tribunal did not have jurisdiction to meet that claim because the claimant was not a worker under the Employment Rights Act. This matter initially found that she was not a worker and didn't have standing to bring the claim and it went to the Supreme Court because of the public policy considerations at play that members of an LLP would be deterred from bringing complaints of whistleblowing. The whistleblowing charity Public Concern at Work, now known as Protect, they became involved as an intervener in that matter, and C.M. Murray represented them in the Supreme Court. Ultimately, the Supreme Court found that she was a worker and that LLP members are workers and are entitled to bring whistleblowing claims. So it's quite a wide scope we can see they've established. Yeah, and some pretty large amounts of damages that can be claimed. Sophie, do you want to just tell us a bit about Ernst & Young and their situation? Yeah, thanks, Meryl. As a recent um, high-profile case of a senior executive partner whistleblower in a Rehan and Ernst & Young, um, and here, Mr. Reham was employed by Ernst & Young, working mainly in Dubai. In 2013, he was an internal audit partner responsible for the audit of a Dubai company called Kalotti. 
he discovered that Colotti was engaged in irregularities involving the import of gold, which was smuggled out of Morocco, coated in silver, and it was then declared as gold in Dubai. So these facts obviously gave rise to a suspicion that Colotti was involved in money laundering. Mr. Rehan disclosed these matters to the relevant regulatory body of the Dubai government. But as a result, he was essentially pressured into sweeping this knowledge under the carpet. He raised this with his managers and he received no support and pressure was put on him to sign the relevant assurance forms and essentially sanitise the findings. He was unwilling to do this, so he was replaced with an auditor who did so and produced a misleading reporting process. Then, as a result, Mr. Rehan was warned about the consequences of disagreeing, was told that he dropped the ball and that he'd not done his job or his duty. He was worried about the repercussions of remaining in Dubai and he was threatened with dismissal unless he agreed to meet with the EU representatives. Ultimately, he resigned and he took his story to the media where his story was widely publicised. And after a lengthy court battle, he was ultimately awarded $10.8 million in damages. So it's a case that sends a clear message that don't have to tolerate unethical conduct within an organisation, no matter how high up the chain it goes. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you know, auditors, compliance people, we have advised people in these positions. And I know Nick and Charlotte are going to talk a bit more about some of their personal experiences, because it's quite scary, I think, to be in that position, isn't it, where you feel you're holding valuable information and sort of you against the organisation. There's something going on. But Sophie, coming back to you first, we've talked a bit about who can bring a claim, but I think we should probably clarify some of the jargon in this legislation, because as we know, the legislation talks about qualifying disclosures, but what is a disclosure? Is that information? Is it an opinion? Is it the sort of thing you'd find in a grievance or an allegation? Can you just give us a little bit of clarity on that? Yeah, again, there's lots of case law around this area, which has helped us clarify what a disclosure has to be in order to have protection. And case law has established that it's not enough to express concern of dissatisfaction or make an allegation of breach of obligation. It has to be the facts which have led to the concern or dissatisfaction or allegation which are conveyed and requires an evaluative assessment by the tribunal And it also brings into question the reasonableness on the part of the worker. There's a burden on the claimant to provide indication within the disclosure itself as to what the relevant breach within the legislation is said to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think it's really where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Sort of Charlotte and Nick, when you're looking at practical situations, it's quite a forensic job to sort of work out what are the disclosures and then what you do with them. So can I maybe sort of hand over to you two to talk a bit about that from your practical experience? Sure. I think, Meryl, that as Sophie said, there's this dichotomy between information being disclosed and allegations being disclosed. And I think that's one of the most difficult areas in practice is honing in on the actual disclosure in each case. So you have sometimes cases that are very straightforward where somebody has made one disclosure in one email and it can be easy then to identify it but other cases are much more complicated. So often you get disclosures which have been made on lots of different occasions or in lots of different documents. It may be that the disclosure was raised as a discrete issue, or it may be that it was buried amongst uh, other information or complaints that aren't relevant for a whistleblowing claim. 
And in those more complex cases, you'll need to work carefully through all of the possible disclosures to identify the ones that do meet the test and disregard the ones that don't. And then when you've identified them, you really need to hone in on the particular information which you say has been disclosed. And I think the exercise of really sort of stripping a document or an oral disclosure back to basics is really important because to build a successful case from the start, what helps, in my view, is being able to summarise that disclosure in a sentence or two and to really simplify it for the tribunal so that it's clear and easily digestible when they read the claim form. Particularly, I think, for clients who work in heavily regulated um, professional services or financial sectors, I think it can be particularly challenging to hone in on the information disclosed and to present it in simple terms, because those often jobs uh, which have particularly specialist or technical knowledge and the individual may have a huge amount of that specialist knowledge, but the tribunal won't. And you've got to think about how you bridge that gap between what you as the claimant know and getting that across the tribunal in a way that they understand. The other important thing to remember is that obviously, if you're bringing a protected disclosure claim, you're going to have to give evidence about those disclosures. So it's really important that you work together with your lawyers as part of the process of identifying them so that when you come to give your evidence, you're happy that these are your disclosures and it's your case being presented rather than something that's been lawyered, if I can put it like that, which might catch you out on the witness stand. So I think in summary, what I would say is don't just have a general paragraph saying the claimant said X and this amounted to a protected disclosure. You're going to need to break it down in each case into specifics, including the time of the disclosure, the date, how it was disclosed, the specific words used, what the information was and what the legal obligations was, which I think Nick is going to talk about in a moment. Thank you, Charlotte. I think that's right. Nick and I and, and all of us all have been presented often with a huge sort of raft of documents and maybe what's supposed to be a summary that itself kind of goes for 20 pages saying, well, this happened and then I said this and I did that and so on. And how do you sort of in practice cut through that, Nick? I think one of the really important things, I'm sure most good lawyers do this anyway, but if it is a senior executive that's perhaps listening to this podcast and they think that they may have blown the whistle, and actually if you just at the outset do a chronology where you say, well, actually, this was the moment that I conveyed information and from that I was then treated in this way. I think doing that sort of exercise is very helpful. One of the things that I was going to discuss is just like any good piece of legislation, we have to at reasonableness. So a whistleblower who's making disclosures about wrongdoing or potential wrongdoing, they've got to express a reasonable belief that there is wrongdoing and that a legal obligation, a regulatory obligation has or is currently or will be breached. And there is a, an employment appeals tribunal case, IGA Securities versus Caution Over which is a case that says that a whistleblower must do more than merely express that something is wrong. And I know that we've sort of touched on that, but that's certainly from my experience. When you actually sit down with a client and you start talking about what's been said, what's been written in emails or, or whatever it is, and they say, well, yes, I believe that I blew the whistle here, that actually when you look at it, you think, well, no, this is kind of a general grievance. There's a bit of an issue that you're getting across. That's not quite the same as meeting the theft for whistleblowing legislation. There needs to be a law regulation, something that is identifiable 
and that has been, is currently being, or will maybe breached. But I think it'd be true to say, because you might get the impression listening to this, that somehow you are meant to know precise legislation. I don't think it'd be true to say that's quite the case. Obviously, in an ideal world, if a client gave you an email where they said this is a breach of section A of uh, regulation, that would be absolutely fantastic. But obviously, that rarely happens. And then just on the reasonableness point itself, it's important to bear in mind, again, this comes from experience of these sorts of matters, an individual doesn't need to be correct in their understanding that a regulation or law has been breached. They just need to have a reasonable belief that it may be. And that, again, when you're sitting down with a client, they might often say, well, I don't know the legislation that well. I don't know if that's a breach. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not fit. So I think that's an important point to bear in mind as well. Yeah, I think often because of the way the legislation is now, basically these claims arise normally after employment's ended, don't they? And I think what we see a lot of is where people don't have other claims, perhaps because of their length of service, but they sense that something was wrong and they ended up being forced to resign or, or even being dismissed because they just became an uncomfortable person to have around and you know their face didn't fit or they feel that perhaps they were selected for redundancy or put under a rigorous performance process, but actually the real reason w- was something else. Is that something, Nick or Charlotte, that you've sort of seen in your practice? Absolutely. Very often you might get people that have just got little more than a bit of a grievance about how they've been treated That's not to say they'll necessarily be protected by whistleblowing legislation. It might be that there are other claims that they have. That's a very common issue we come across. So just picking up on that, because I'm sure some people would be aware that there's something required more than a sort of personal interest, isn't there? And there's there's been a debate about the necessary element of public interest to convert someone who might just have an employment grievance into a whistleblower. In terms of public interest, what do we sort of now know about that? Louise, should we come back to you on that? Yes, thanks, Merle. Well, that was actually uh, another case on that topic. There was another matter where CM Murray successfully represented the intervener, public concern at work. In that matter, the employment tribunal had found that the claimant had been dismissed because he had made a protected disclosure. That disclosure was regarding the depression of the respondents' profits so that they could minimise the amount of commission payable to their employees. So at the first instance, the Employment Tribunal found that the claimant had made the disclosures in the reasonable belief that they were in the public interest. That decision was appealed, and the issue on appeal was whether a disclosure, which is in the private interest of the worker making it, becomes in the public interest simply because it also serves the private interests of other workers. And so the Court of Appeal found that there was several points which are usually going to be relevant when determining whether or not a disclosure is in the public interest. They include the numbers in the group whose interests the disclosure served, the nature of the interest affected and the extent to which they are affected by the wrongdoing the nature of the wrongdoing disclosed, and the identity of the alleged wrongdoer. And in that case, they also held that the workers' reasons for making the protective disclosure are not strictly relevant to the legal issues. So the necessary belief is simply a belief the disclosure is in the public interest. 
the particular reason why the worker believes that it's in the public interest is not determinative of itself. So if, for example, you have an HR manager who's aware that there are people in their organisation who are bullies, and that affects you know, a large number of teams who are on the receiving end of that kind of unlawful bullying or even harassing behaviour, is that the kind of public interest that could give rise to whistleblowing? I could well believe that to be the case because, you know, so much of the issues, I suppose, that we see around whistleblowing is that it's still a bit of a taboo word. And what days like today are trying to do is promote a bit of a cultural shift. I suppose it is an element of being shielded by being on the receiving end of a potential whistleblowing claim. I don't think that that would necessarily be quite what the legislators had in mind at the time. So I could well imagine that, that sort of person might it's obviously very fact-specific, but I could see circumstances where that sort of occasion would amount to protected disclosure. It would be in the public interest. Yeah, I think we've seen, obviously, when Chesterton at first instance was decided and going up through the courts, everyone was really interested to see how the courts interpreted this new provision. And there was concern that it was going to really limit the number of whistleblowing claims that could be brought. But the way that they've dealt with it has meant that hasn't really happened in practice. And we've seen that the courts have been keen to ensure that they're not shutting out meritorious whistleblown claims because of this new wording. And it's really important for people to realise that it's not mutually exclusive that something can be in your interest and also in the public interest. And the courts have been willing to be quite creative, I think, in the way they approach that issue to make sure claims aren't shut out unnecessarily. Yeah, I think that we would agree with, with that analysis, that it was, as you say, going back, quite a worry that it had been entirely sort of squashed as a remedy, that that's not proved to be the case. And indeed, looking at both dismissal and detriment, and at who can be liable, I don't know if we could perhaps come back to you, Sophie, to talk a bit about the Ozipov case and the potential exposure that managers, the senior execs obviously wear different hats, senior execs who are, you know, in, in that role as a manager, how they can be exposed perhaps to whistleblowing liability. Can you just touch on that for us? Uh, this case, Timis and Ozipov went to Court of Appeal ultimately. And it really does show how wide the net can go in terms of liability. And when an employee does suffer detriment or dismissal as a result of making a protected disclosure, they often have a claim against an employer for unfair dismissal under Section 103A of the Employment Rights Act. Or they can have a claim for detriment for making a protected disclosure under Section 47B. And both of these claims can go alongside each other. And it's in, in this case in particular, the claimant brought a claim against the employer for unfair dismissal and also against the directors who are responsible for giving instructions that culminated in his dismissal. So they both went alongside each other and ultimately the company ended up being insolvent. So it was really the, the claim against the directors that had the most you know, financial worth for the claimant and ultimately compensation of 843,000 grossed up to 1.7 million was awarded. And it shows that directors can be personal liable for the post-dismissal losses that result from the pre-dismissal detriments. Yeah, no, indeed, pretty <laughs> sobering case. And I've certainly been involved in some detriment cases, for example, where 
people have found that their bonus has been cut back or even reduced to nothing prior to a dismissal or even you know where there's no dismissal involved and they've been able to bring successful detriment claims so that's another example really of how the whistleblowing legislation works i think that it's quite an important point when you're building a claim and you are looking to submit an ACAS notification and subsequently an ET1 at the Employment Tribunal, do need to give very careful thought to the individual or individuals that you might name personally. Strategically speaking, I think sometimes it would be very obvious who the individual is that's been subjecting you to a detriment, for example. And so it might fit very neatly that a claim is brought against them as well as the employer. But strategically, sometimes it can give you, I think, problems where people are individually named and I think it can sometimes cause employers assuming they're sort of working with a named individual who's very senior to become that bit more entrenched in their position generally when it comes to trying to settle the matter that sort of thing is I think worth bearing in mind I don't know what other people's experience of naming individuals is in, in that regard but I just think it's worth careful thought. I think that's interesting from a tactics point of view, isn't it? I think something that Charlotte mentioned, certainly in your notes, Charlotte, was that in a sense, a whistleblower is in the position of others with protected characteristics, you know, sort of allied to discrimination law. And again, this sort of tactic comes up in those cases as well, doesn't it? In terms of, I don't want to veer off the topic, but it's a tactic to consider. Absolutely. Bringing a claim against an individual respondent comes with its benefits and its risks, as Nick has said. So it obviously puts greater pressure on that individual respondent and that can put pressure on the employer as well, who might well be standing behind them and funding them. But it can also increase the sort of sensitivities and, as Nick says, entrench people in their positions. And it means that there's two people who have to agree on something for the respondent rather than one. But what's really interesting about Ossipov, I think, is that it's given those personal liability provisions in respect of whistleblowing much greater bite for claimants, because given that greater losses flow from dismissal than detriments, it means that claimants have a much wider scope now in terms of how they can use personal liability. Yeah, I think that's right. Thank you. And thank you too for talking about the the position of the employer, because I think as we sort of come towards the end of our chat, we should just, as Nick, you've said, this isn't just a one-sided thing, is it? I think for good employers, they appreciate in a funny sort of way, whistleblowers and part of what today is about is driving the culture and driving the gender here so that wrongdoing is eliminated within workplaces and indeed in society more widely and protect have a number of suggestions i think on their website about what employers can do to celebrate today and akin really to discrimination to enable the conversation because i think the nature of whistleblowing being that you can only bring a claim once you've suffered a detriment or been dismissed it can end up a little bit negative and embarrassing for people to raise issues where they say, well, I've observed this practice. Why do we do that? I think we could do it differently. I think we could do it better. And so I think some of the ideas that Protect have got about focus groups, certainly about training, certainly looking at your whistleblowing policy. And if you've had any whistleblowing claims, reviewing it, seeing if it's still relevant whether it can be improved. So there are definitely ways that employers, I think, can see whistleblowing, not just as an attack on their integrity and the way they do their business, but as a way to drive a positive culture. Cultural change is very much driven by the employers. And I think that they shouldn't feel that it is an attack. One can understand how they may feel a bit like that sometimes. But cultural change comes from the decision makers and so on. And 
really, I think, typically speaking, cultural change comes at a tectonically slow pace, really. But at the moment, one would hope that in an age where we've seen recently, obviously, very recently, we've seen social movements like Black Lives Matter and years ago, hashtag Me Too move. I think people are becoming much more socially aware. And I think that employers as well are becoming much more open to changing cultures. And so hopefully whistleblowing will, if you like, go the same way, the approach to whistleblowers. Yeah, and in terms of what we can expect in the future, I'm aware that Protect are sponsoring a whistleblowers bill where they're looking at some of the areas we've talked about where there could be some positive change. So widening the scope of who can bring a whistleblowing claim altering the test and the burden of proof to make it easier to bring unfair dismissal claims, appointing a whistleblowing commissioner and allowing disclosures to be made to that person. And I think you picked up on something, Nick, to do with the FCA and the Dear CEO letter that you think will sort of drive change to some extent for the future. Yes. So in January this year, the FCA wrote a a Dear CEO letter which is it basically set out how firms handle non-financial misconduct, including discrimination, harassment, victimisation and bullying. And how they deal with it is indicative of its culture. And it could be that if senior managers fail to take reasonable steps to address non-financial misconduct, it could lead to a determination that they are not fit and proper. So it's really quite a serious, well, risk. It's a serious obligation on senior managers to deal with whistleblowers properly. So, you know, I think the FCA in particular, one of those bodies, are really, you know, seem to be doing their best to affect change and to drive change, given what's gone on in the last couple of decades. It's not entirely surprising that they feel the need to drive such change. But clearly this sort of thing is a good thing. But as I say, I just flagged that I'm no sociologist, but typically cultural change does take time. And it's just something that everyone will have to very gradually get used to, I think. I think that's right. But if you're a senior exec and you sort of feel you're up against that kind of wall and maybe your only option would be to interrupt your career and move on, I think there's some comfort that actually that's not your only choice. And I saw a quote somewhere that, you know, the whistleblower might find themselves caught between the rock and the hard place, the rock being a martyr for the public interest and the hard place being a traitor for personal gain. And nobody wants to fall into either of those categories. So just quickly to wrap up, what would be your sort of one piece of advice to someone who's thinking they might need to step forward and take on the role of a whistleblower with support? What would be your one piece of advice to them? Charlotte? I'm thinking about it from a sort of practical perspective and in terms of looking down the line if they have to bring a claim I'd say get your ducks in order at the start and put the work in to make sure you know your claim from the outset and you're putting your best foot forward at that stage. Thank you. I totally agree with that and I think probably is true to say as well you know you need to get advice at an early stage really No one, I don't think, would really want to go the whole hog, if you like, on a whistleblowing claim. You know, they're very expensive, they're very stressful and so on. No one really wants to be in that position. But equally, I think there's ways of settling a matter much earlier on. But I think to do that, you do need the advice as to how you might leverage your position. I think also ultimately begin to have faith in the system because with cases like Rehan and EY and you know Timothy Nosipov, the really high profile ones, 
where change is beginning to happen after whistleblowers in such senior positions are being brave and stepping up because it does take a Mm -hmm. tremendous amount of courage to risk the implications on your career and things like that so slowly but surely I think we'll start to see more and people should begin to have more courage to speak out and I hope as well with the potential whistleblowing reform and greater protection introduced it can only be more positive. Thank you. Have you got anything to add Louise? I think I'd, I'd certainly agree with all the points there especially the points Nick and Charlotte were making about getting advice early in the matter. I think the importance of that really can't be underestimated particularly you've got a lot of individual senior executives who are regulated. There may be concerns and things they need to think about there as well when they are making a whistleblowing disclosure. So I think getting the right advice early on is really, really pivotal. Well, thank you all very much for your time this afternoon. And if anyone listening has queries, you can contact myself, Louise, Nick and Sophie at CM Murray by going to our website. Or you can contact Charlotte Davies at Littleton Chambers by visiting their website. We hope you've enjoyed today and we'd be delighted to hear from you, whether it's questions, comments, experiences. So again, thank you very much.